Well, I have a question for you as we begin an exposition of this text. Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe the account that was just read for us and we've been in for the last few months, this account of 3,500 years ago, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that the Lord God of all creation, the one that created all things from out of nothing, that He actually appeared to this man, Moses, through a bush that was burning but not consumed, and that He commissioned this man to go and to lead Israel out of captivity from slavery in Egypt? Do you believe this is true? If Egypt was a jury, from Exodus chapter 5 to Exodus chapter 8, they have traveled through all the components that a juror must decide. Did this event happen or not? Innocent or guilty? It began in chapter 5 by Pharaoh saying, upon the command from Moses, let my people go that they may serve me, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says. It began with impossibility. There is no way that your God exists or that He's powerful enough or that He commissioned you for this because Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? As the story progressed, we see the first interaction that the movement shifted secondly to maybe and the interaction with Aaron and the magicians of Pharaoh and the wise men of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh said, prove yourselves. And so they cast down the staff and it became a serpent and it gobbled up the magicians' staffs. Do you believe that's true? It went from maybe then, from impossible to maybe, to with the miracle of the Nile to blood, it shifted to probably. They couldn't explain this, but it moved to probably, not to worshipful obedience or submission, but to probably enough that they would dig trenches along the Nile to continue on with their life the way they enjoyed it. From impossible to maybe to probable to, last week we noted, beyond a reasonable doubt with the plague of the frogs. How can we say beyond a reasonable doubt? Because Pharaoh would look and would tell Moses, you go plead with your God that the frogs may go away. Make it stop. And from beyond a reasonable doubt to today, certainty. Certainty is what Egypt finds itself. From the magicians to the masses of Egypt will look and will say, behold, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. We're experts in the counterfeit. And what we're seeing here cannot be duplicated. And it certainly can't be duplicated by these two 80-year-old plus men. This is the finger of God. This morning as we examine these, this text in a little bit more detail, we're going to note together three observations, three progressions in the text that I hope for us to do two things. As believers gathered, I hope that this builds a greater marveling at the greatness of our God. That God would recapture our awe and attention as He does with all of Egypt in this miracle, in this plague, I should say, these plagues. 
And secondly, that it should lead us with confidence and joy to worship the God who is unchanging. For Pharaoh, the leader of the greatest superpower that the world knew at that time, he will find himself, though his heart ever hardened and consistently proud, his motives and morals will change and shift with the circumstances. And believer, we worship a God who is unchanging. He's the one that we give our sin and our hope and our lives to. And so this leads us to greater joy and confidence to speak of Jesus. So let's look at our first observation, verses 16 through 19, the first portion, that Pharaoh's magicians are humbled and they marvel at the power of the one true God. Remember, in all this interaction, Pharaoh has gathered the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, and these magicians, these sorcerers. They look now, and as we remember last week's plague, the frogs came up from the water, and now the gnats come from the land. It's like a creation cycle continued on from Genesis. Now, the frogs came and took pleasure away even from the insides. Remember, the frogs were hopping around all around the kitchen and the inside of the house. The gnats are now taking away any sense of relief that the fresh air could provide. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, you read that it says lice there. Because this word, and most commentators will pick this up, could easily be related to simply this annoying little bug. In the same way that if you're outside in East Texas in the evening and these little annoying bugs descend on you, you're not really trying to dissect exactly what it is. You're just saying... What is that? Gnat, right? This little annoying, pesty bug. That's what this next plague is. And this plague is so ferocious that it impacts man and beast alike. But this is the first time in our account, the first time that the magicians have come and have had no ability to duplicate what took place. And we don't know that they've always done what they wanted to do, but we know now they've reached a point where they cannot do what they see Moses and Aaron pull off. You remember at the beginning with the staffs. They could somehow make their staffs become as serpents. They could go with the context of the frogs, and they could make more frogs, which seemed like not a great idea. But now with the gnats, he strikes the earth, and gnats come up. They cannot mimic this. They cannot duplicate this. And what's it lead them to say? They look at Pharaoh, and they tell him, not we can't do it. They look at Pharaoh as eyewitness experts. If we were in a court of law, these are the men that we would bring in as experts on what's authentic and not. They were the experts that gave their lives to the sleight of hand. They look to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. Moses will use this reference again in Exodus chapter 31 with the second giving of the law of God upon the tablets of the Lord giving the law. This is the law of God, the finger of God. In the confession that they make, that this is the finger of God, they're professing, the magicians, the experts, are saying two things are true. Number one, there's no way these two 80-year-old plus men just did this. So they're saying there's supernatural origins. But the second thing they're saying is that it's their God is clearly doing it. Their God is real. Like, we're experts of counterfeit. They're real. This is the real deal. Their God's the true God. And what's Pharaoh's response? Last week we saw in Exodus 15, or verse 15, at the hardening of their hearts, what did Pharaoh do? His heart hardened, and we saw that it hardened, and it produced what fruit? A fruit of his ears. He would no longer listen to Moses and Aaron. Why did he not want to listen to Moses and Aaron? Because they spoke forward the clear word of God. 
But now, in just a few verses later in this account, now he's cutting off his wise men. He's cutting off his own sorcerers. What changed? It's still the same guys. It's his A-team. But now he's not listening to his counselors. Why? Because they, their profession of who God is and what God has done. And so what does he do? He doesn't humble himself. He doesn't marvel at what he's seen. Instead, he says, I'm cutting you out of my life. There's some of us in this room that have lost friends and family that have cut you out of their life because of a steadfastness and a confession of who God is and what God has done in your life. The good news of Jesus Christ crucified your hope of glory. That's what Pharaoh does now to the magicians. Now, there's no insight here. There's nothing that makes us say that the magicians repented and have committed their faith and their lives to Yahweh, the Lord God. But they recognize what's true. These two facts that this is not done by man. This is done by God. And what we see not only in history, but in all of Scripture is this theme. That when we see certain things we cannot, cannot explain, when we see God working, and especially in the miraculous counts, all through Scripture, and Elijah, but also through the New Testament, with Jesus and the apostles, is that people will have no problem recognizing that's miraculous. But what they will often do is fail to ascribe it to the Lord who works the miraculous. And what the Scriptures do for us is give us a great and tremendous clarity what Jesus does is He doesn't just come and work miracles. The miracles themselves, as we discussed in our gospel series through the Gospel of John, is that they attest exactly who Jesus is. They're a foretaste and they are a blessing, but they attest to who He is. So when we read in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus is casting out demons, the Pharisees don't look and say like, nah, there's no way that happened. They can't argue it. They, however shift to the, to the mode of argumentation to say he's doing it by the, by the prince of demons. He's casting them out by the power of Satan. They have no problem not denying the not deniable, but their hearts are hardened and they will not submit in obedient, joyful worship to the Lord God. And that's what we see here in this account this far earlier. The Pharisees look at what's taking place. And they clearly look at these men that are untrained in these arts. And they say, this is real. This is the finger of God. When I ask you this morning, believer, what's that do for you? To know that your hope is in the very same one that 3,500 years ago baffled the greatest of magicians and sorcerers. Confounded the, the leader of the greatest superpower that the world knew. He's the one that you have placed your sin with to ask for forgiveness. He's the one that you've entrusted your purpose and your worth and your work and lives to. Isn't that good news? The one that the magicians even have to look at and say, behold, this is the finger of God. That's the one that you've come to and professed. And so the Christ, the Messiah that would come and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John chapter 14, is itself a profession that we know this God. And we're known by this God. 
who loves us and cares for us. He baffles even the magicians, humbled and marveled at the power of the one true God. Do you know Him? And if you're a believer, you're moved to joy to know that I trust in the one that baffles the wisest of this world. Isn't that good news? So let's go on to verses 19, pick back up halfway through 19 through 24. As we know, second, that the Lord makes it abundantly clear to all of Egypt that the Lord God of Israel is the one true God over all creation. So we see in this account that he begins by baffling the magicians. And now he's going to baffle the masses of Egyptians. Have you heard the saying that if there's bad news, you want to get out ahead of it? Control it, spin it? The Lord makes sure that these plagues cannot be spun. He gets out entirely in front of it. We see in verse 19, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. And so verse 21, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies. But where are the swarm of flies not going to come to? They're not going to come upon the Israelite people. The Israelite people experienced the blessing of now, but not yet. Do you remember in God's covenant promise what He promised among the other promises? He promised Israel a land. Is Israel in the land yet? No, that's why the book's called Exodus. they got to exit this other land that's not their land. So they're, they're not yet in the land, but they're blessed by being the people of God, the covenant people of God. They're blessed in that the plague doesn't come to them. It's like this protective force field that the Lord is sovereign even of the, over the flies the ultimate Lord of the flies. He's over them and He binds them and does not permit them to go to His people so that all of the general Egyptians would have to come out and look as they and their livestock are being just pestered to death. Now the threat of these bugs is, is not immediate to their life, but make no mistake, if the Lord would have persisted these plagues, all of Egypt would have died. Their livestock would not have been able to eat or focus. But in the immediate sense, in just a one-week time period, they are experiencing what the older sibling says about their younger sibling to their parent. They're annoying me to death. They're being annoyed to death. They're being pestered and festered. But what Pharaoh does is his heart hardens. He does not soften. The book of Proverbs provides two character sketches. Two profiles are painted. The wise and the fool. The wise man and the fool. And so in this way, Pharaoh is the perfect picture of what the fool is. A real life person who plays the fool. In Proverbs King Solomon says it like this in Proverbs 2, 1 through 2, to his sons, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Pharaoh shows us a real-life example of somebody that will not be taught. His heart scoffs at wisdom. He cuts out the counsel of his life. Even the darkened counsel when they profess the truth of who God is and what God's done, he cuts them off. His desire is only to be wise in his own understanding. Every plague, he doubles down. 
Proverbs further gives this example of those that will listen to wise counsel and those that will not. The, the wise person and the fool. Proverbs 12, 15 says it like this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 23, 9, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Inner stage left, Pharaoh. He models for us this hardness of heart. When hardship comes into life, it brings, of course, difficulties and pain. We, we should not forget the Egyptian people in this. No, they're not innocent. But as every plague goes on, they're enduring more and more hardship. Hardship in life, we worship a God that is so great that He works even through hardships and heartaches. And many of us gathered this morning, part of our testimonies is that the Lord allowed us to walk in the foolishness of our ways. And we grabbed what we thought we were pursuing and we found the just hollow. The emptiness. The vanity of it. We thought we got what we wanted and we did, but we didn't. And the Lord used the heartache of the foolishness to open our eyes. COVID has had a host of hardships, that's obvious. One study done by the University of, of Copenhagen found that Google searches for prayer have increased over 90% since COVID began. That 90 different countries have had the highest searches for prayer and spiritual things. All in hardship. One Pew Research poll in the last year at the end of 2020 asked evangelicals what has happened to your faith in this season of hardship. And it found that 42% said their faith is made stronger in hardship. 1% said it's grown weaker. The hardship of the plagues has led Egypt and, and, and even Egypt's sorcerers to recognize the authority of the one true God. Yet Pharaoh will not be humbled. In life, we're, of course, we're not promised a freedom from hardship. But we remember as we progress through this story, when Israel leaves the promised land, the text will tell us that there will be many also that will join them. An unknown number of these Egyptians in all likelihood will go with them. God is faithful to work even in hardship. Do you believe that's true? Well, sometimes when we get into difficult seasons, it's harder to believe that than it is to believe that the Lord spoke to Moses through a bush that was burned but was not consumed. But the Lord is faithful. Do you realize that every Sunday when we gather here and we sing and we're reminded and rehearse the gospel, as Pastor Stephen says, God, man, Christ responds? That as we sing, there's some around you that have struggled to even get the words out, not because they do not believe, but because they're so tired. But God is faithful. He works as the world gets increasingly dark. The world works that His glory might be demonstrated. He provides a dividing line around His people to show without beyond a reasonable doubt with certainty that these people's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh the Lord God, is the true God. And that's good news for us. And so as, he, as the Lord dunks and hangs on the rim in front of the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh himself to say, this is me. 
I alone am the one true God. It stands in stark contrast to the ways of the world for all of time since the fall, and including today. I don't know that our country, or perhaps our world, has ever been more syncretistic today than it is today. That is to say that others will come to religions like a buffet and say, I'll take a little bit of this one, and a little bit of this one, and a little bit of this one, and we'll combine them together, and I'll make what feels good and right for me. And you have your faith, and you keep it to yourself, and I'll have my faith, and I'll keep it to myself, and we're the same. And in this, it's a pluralistic world that looks and says things like this, we all worship the same God. It's faith is what matters, not the object. The world has clearly forgotten the lesson of Egypt, has not read the book of Exodus. Jesus was not joking when he said to Thomas that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He wasn't joking when he said, if you had known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus speaking of his divinity, his essence of same nature as God, fully God, fully man, Jesus is. Recognizing the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father sending the Son who would take on flesh and live a sinless, righteous life, fulfilling all the demands of the law that was written by the finger of God would lay his life down as a make-right sacrifice for sin. Every sinner that looks to Christ Jesus finds a perfect Savior. That's good news. The grave could not hold him. God raised him from the dead. He's ascended and he makes intercession for us and he will come again one day soon. He will make all things right. The dead in Christ will rise first receiving a glorified, resurrected body and we will worship him for eternity. This is good news Peter and John, before the Jewish council, spoke of the exclusivity and the reality of who Jesus is. In Acts chapter 4, after working this miracle, listen to what they say. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What did Peter and John do? What did Moses and Aaron do? They each made crystal clear, listen, they each made crystal clear that the world could not simply say, that was amazing. But they made crystal clear the one who worked the miracle. It was not Moses and Aaron. It was not Peter and John. It was the Lord God. The only way of life. The only God who's created all things from out of nothing. Your only true hope. True hope. Good news. Good news. I want to bring this as an application for us. I think part of it is my cowardice and my fear of man. But for years, I would, maybe I heard it somewhere as well, but I definitely latched onto it for a reason. 
And people would give the example of the street preacher that was either profane or just so direct and putting off that that was this caricature that was put on this side. And so what I believed and what I wanted to believe was that, okay, if I just live my life faithfully, and this is true, as believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit, He indwells us and He's making us new and He's working in us and refining our character. And our actions begin to look more like not us, right? And more like our hope. The reason for the hope that we have. And so I would try to live my life in the best way that I could. Honoring God. Trying to love and to serve others. No credit needed. Don't worry about it. What do you need? But what I would do is is I I would hide in that. And I would not share the gospel of Jesus. I was comfortable with people looking and saying, Brent, he's a great guy. Or clearly ascribing to it and saying, well, Brent's a Christian. But just because somebody can look at your life and say, well, they're a Christian, doesn't mean they understand the gospel message. And it doesn't mean they've heard it as a point of response to say, do you believe Jesus is who He claimed to be? Do you believe He rose from the dead? And if you haven't given your sins to Him, what do you do with them? And so I would hide in my lifestyle and separate it from a giving of God active glory with others that Jesus is my hope. It's He working within me to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so believers, here's the big point of application as we think about sharing our faith. We need to be as crystal clear as John was and, and Peter was with this miracle. And as crystal clear as Moses was and Aaron was in the plagues and why they were happening, and what the Lord was doing. Pointing to the Lord with confidence and clarity, because Jesus is our only hope. Is that true? That's good news. This is good news. So let's look now. We've seen a review. Pharaoh's magicians are humbled and marvel at the power of the one true God. We just saw that the Lord makes it abundantly clear to all of Egypt and the Lord, that the Lord God of Israel is the one true God over all creation. He didn't allow the flies to touch the Israelites or their livestock. In that way. But third, we note that the humiliation in verses 25 through 32, that the humiliation that Pharaoh's ego was in, had endured had brought him to the bargaining stage of grief, but not worshipful obedience. He's beginning to bow, but not bow in worship. We know the scripture that every knee will bow before Jesus Christ, but not every knee will bow in worshipful obedience. God will make Pharaoh bow. But Pharaoh said with confidence, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? The Lord will make him bow. But Pharaoh's heart will never bow in worshipful obedience. He's gone through the stages of grief now. Pharaoh has the fourth plague. He's worked through denial He's worked through anger. And now he's reached the bargaining stage. He begins bargaining with Moses. He's come to the table. Do you see what he said first? Here's his first offer. Pharaoh's finally saying, okay, I see. Your God's legit. I'm still legit. But your God's, he's impressive. So here's what I'm going to do for you right now for 
the low payment of 1999. It's going to expire at midnight. I'm going to allow you to gather the Israelites and you can go and you sacrifice and worship to your God. But you can't leave the land. That's the first negotiation. Aren't you glad God doesn't change? What Pharaoh does here is what he's done his entire life as a politician. And I don't mean that as a bad word. It's not wrong to go and negotiate and figure out terms. It's not a bad thing. But what he's used to doing is he gets Moses. He sees that Moses is the leader. He wants to go speak to Moses, and he tries to negotiate terms like he's done his whole life as the leader of Egypt. We see it in our own news, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's some kind of meeting. An ambassador comes and meets with the president. Or the president goes and meets with this prime minister. And, and you wait to find out what policy is going to come. What's going to change? Because they met together. Pharaoh tries to go meet with Moses and see if he will change. Because Pharaoh is used to playing the game where he by default is himself a god, but he's a god that can conform, ironically, to his image and his comfort level. But Moses is not the king of kings. Moses is the ambassador. And so Moses has no negotiation rules. We talked about this at our new member workshop last week, that that this this is a brick wall issue. Moses has no right to negotiate the the essentials of the faith. And so it's the same. The Lord says, let my people go that they may serve me. He's not going to change. And so what does Pharaoh do? slides back across the table the second statement, which is, okay, y'all can go, but don't go too far from the land. You can go, but stay close. And you see what his response reveals about his heart? His problem is that he thinks Israel is are His people. He thinks Israel, they're they're His people. They're in His land. They're doing His work for His empire. And He's treating Israel like they're His toddler. They're His 10-month-old that He's got His hands underneath the armpit as they're taking the first steps. I don't go too far. And what did the Lord say at the very beginning? Who is Israel? They are My people. They are My firstborn son. And you're going to harden your heart so much, Pharaoh, that I'm going to take the life of your firstborn, of you and your whole nation. Pharaoh's heart is hard, but he comes to the negotiation table because he's a man. As men were ever shifting back and forth. But the Lord is faithful and unchanging. And so Moses tells him, okay, listen, I'll intercede for you, but don't lie again. Don't change your mind again. Pharaoh's like, I'm not, no way. And so what happens? Moses intercedes, and what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart, and he doesn't let them go. And this is how the script plays out again and again. That's a spoiler alert if you're new to Exodus. But what's happening here? Pharaoh is beginning to crack. 
His heart stays the same, but his policy and his circumstances, as his circumstances change, his policy changes. And because he longs for power, what will he do? Increasingly, he will devalue the life of his own people as he grasps for power and vanity. And all these things, in contrast to Pharaoh, we see the glory of God and what theologians call the immutability of God. The immutability of God. It simply means that God does not change in His will or in His character or His attributes or His nature. God is unchanging. If you're trusting in your own self, what a scary person to trust in. If you're trusting in me, it's a scary person to trust in with your sin because I change. We all change based upon our last meal. Back and forth and circumstances change. Look at the changing components of this world ever changing. And we do hope we change, right? As We hope that we grow and mature in Christ. But God cannot grow. He's perfect. In our Malachi series, we saw this. He says as much Himself in Malachi chapter 3. As a reminder, He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you... Oh, children of Jacob are not consumed. See, it's a good thing that God does not change. Because the Old Testament Scriptures show us, the Hebrew Scriptures, that the people change back and forth and back and forth. But because God has made a covenant based upon His faithfulness and attributes, they are not consumed. And He tells them in Malachi 3, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from My statutes and have not kept them, but return to Me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's good news. So as you literally turn on the news and you see the shiftingness of the world, let it move you to worship that your God is unchanging. The God of the Egyptians is changing like the shifting of shadows. But the one that you've placed your hope in is unchanging and faithful in all His ways. The immutability of God leads us to greater worship. He's faithful even when we are not. The late R.C. Sproul says it so well like this on the immutability of God. He says, the Lord's unchanging character, listen, does not mean His relationship with us is not real. In fact, it's His unchanging righteousness that results in His wrath toward the unrepentant. And it's His unchanging love that leads Him to call out His people. For Christians, the unchanging character of God is the rock upon which we stand in all of our circumstances. Psalm 46 paints this picture of the immutability of God in a world of ever-shifting shadows so well. What I'd like you to do, if you would, is I'd like you to close your eyes. As you close your eyes, I'm going to read Psalm 46. I want to challenge you to put pictures in your mind to the words that I'm going to read. And let it lead you to worship and joy that your hope is in the unchanging God. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling.
There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Beloved of God, rest in your unchanging King of Kings. Take refuge in Him. The very one that the magicians would look at and say, Behold, this is the finger of God. He holds you in His hand. As a believer, you're hidden in Christ and Christing God. Be encouraged and of good hope in a world that desperately needs to hear and to know of the finger of God. Amen? Is He faithful? He's worth our praise at all times and all ways. Now, in our next steps, we come with these three components, and the first of which is an encouragement to discuss this on your way home. Now, it's family weekend, so we have some parents here, perhaps with your college students. I want to encourage you to discuss this first next step question with them before you leave. I want you to share of a time that you tried to bargain with God or come to Him on your own terms. That's what Pharaoh will do consistently. He'll bargain with God. He'll try to negotiate with God. And what about you? How did... What of a time that you've tried to come to God on your own terms, even as perhaps a believer? Or you wrestled in trying to come to God on your own terms rather than how He calls us to in worshipful obedience. Our small groups just began last week. There's still plenty of room to sign up and get involved there. But if you're involved in a small group or a small group leader, I want to encourage you to highlight this first next step question and discuss it with the group. It's a great way to break down some boundary walls that naturally exist. A second, the Lord did all of this. Do you realize the Lord does all of this so that His people may serve and worship Him? Think about that. All these plagues, all this hardship, that His people may come and worship Him. Just as He told Moses upon this mountain where we speak of Mount Sinai. You think the Lord cares about worship? Can you believe that the Lord is pleased by our worship? us, that He loves us, and in Christ is true hope. And so we worship the Lord with joy and gladness. But that means at the same point, as we remember the great commissioning that God has given us, that He has placed people in our lives that do not know and do not worship Him. And so my encouragement to us, the challenge to myself as well, is will we ask the Holy Spirit to convict us and give us Guidance and boldness to give clarity to the character we try to live our lives by. To be able to text or call someone this week or take a walk across the street and build a relationship, but to be clear of why we have hope 
And why they can too, because of the resurrected Christ. Third, how ought the dishonesty of the compromising world lead us to greater adore the uncompromising holiness of the God that we sing to and worship? As the world falters, we shouldn't be shocked. We should grieve and we should intercede. But we should with greater and joy-filled hearts worship the One, the unchangeable God, where and in who our hope rests. This is good news. Amen? He's worthy of our song. Amen means that's the truth. I believe it. He's worthy of our song. And so this first song that Pastor Stephen has chosen for us to be able to sing together is a song that clearly articulates our hope. It's a song that I think is so neat to sing together as a congregation. Because as a believer, as you sing, you sing with other believers surrounding you. And this is our corporate testimony of our life before knowing Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to give you an encouragement to know there'll be ministry leaders here after the service that would love to pray for you and encourage you. Or if you just want prayer or encouragement this morning, we're here for you. Mark it on a connect card, but let's encourage you this day. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to the King.